Good morning. How are you going? If you haven't opened up your Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat in front of you. And the passage that we're going to be looking at is found on page 228 in that Bible. Now, if you're new to Oakton Baptist Church, what we do here at Oakton is we study through parts of the Bible because we believe that the Bible is God's message to us and that through the Bible, God speaks to us. And in our morning services, we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is a historical book in the Bible, meaning it deals with the history of God's people Israel. The Old Testament is primarily the story of God's dealing with Israel in preparation for the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And then the New Testament is primarily about Jesus and his life, his death, his burial, and his soon return. And so far in the story, God has delivered Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them into the promised land under Joshua. But God's people have turned away from him. They, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Uh, people are worshipping and serving idols. And it's upon this stage that we see the book of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we've seen that God had a plan. And through this barren woman, Hannah, and her cries out to the Lord, the Lord actually answered her prayer and she had a son, Samuel. And she offered Samuel back to the Lord and, and she gave him to the Lord and he was there at Shiloh, ministering at Shiloh. And then in 1 Samuel 2, we saw that the Lord shined the light on Shiloh. And just as everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes in Israel, so too this was happening in the priesthood. And we saw in 1 Samuel 2 that Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were treating the Lord's sacrifices with contempt. They were using them for their own gain. And they were actually committing acts of sexual immorality with women at the tabernacle in Shiloh. But God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. And we saw in 1 Samuel 2 that judgment was coming on the house of Eli. But then last week in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we saw that God had a plan to deliver Israel and it involved that boy, Samuel, and God calls Samuel. And by the end of 1 Samuel chapter 3, we see that he grows up to be this mighty prophet of whom none of his words fell to the ground and the Lord was with him. So from Dan in the north to Bathsheba in the south, we see that all in Israel knew that he was a prophet of God. And so 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 1 begins with these words, And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. But sadly, Israel was not yet ready to receive God's word. And it will take four chapters, excuse me, for them to be ready. And so this morning we're going to cover these four chapters, 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6 and 7. But we're going to fly over some chapters. Look down in 1 Samuel 4 verse 1. We read this. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They were encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines were encamped at Aphek. Now the Philistines were not the original inhabitants of the land of Canaan, but they were a seafaring people who came from the coast, and they swept in after Israel had come in and conquered the land. And the Philistines had five major cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath, and the Philistines would become the major enemy of Israel in this time period. And in verse 2, we read of one of their first battles. Look down in verse 2. It says this, The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men 
on the field of battle. So here's Israel at Ebenezer and the Philistines are at Aphek and they have this battle and in their first battle, Israel is defeated and 4,000 men are killed. And then look down in verse 3. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now this was the right question to ask. Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated? Why are things going wrong? You see, God had promised Israel the promised land. He'd promised to fight for them. He'd promised to give them the land and to keep them in the land, but now they were defeated. So this was the right question to be asking. Why has the Lord defeated us today before our enemies, the Philistines? Do you know in ministry, I've asked myself this question or a variation of this question many times. Why is the Lord not blessing in the way he has promised? Why are we so defeated? I mean, Jesus said concerning his church, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But I don't know what you see, but what I see when I look out into the Australian church, I don't see a prevailing church, rather I see the gates of hell advancing rather than receding. So why is God not blessing his church in the way that he promised? And why are we so defeated? But it's not just in the church that this troubles me. It's also in my own life. I mean, why is God not blessing me in the way he promised? Why am I often defeated? Why am I not walking in the victory that I see in the New Testament that was purchased for me by Christ? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why, Lord, do I not seem to be in your blessing? Why am I so defeated? Well, like many church elderships across the country, the elders of Israel don't ponder this question for very long. Rather, they propose a solution. Look down in verse 3. They say, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now, as we said last week, the ark of the covenant was this golden box with two golden angels, two cherubim on top, and in the middle was the mercy seat. And in the ark was Aaron's staff that had budded, a, a golden jar of manna, and the two stone tablets of the law that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai. And the ark was located in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It was a symbol of God's presence. You see, the Holy of Holies was holy because God was present there. And the priest could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, and when he came in, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, atoning for the sins of the people. And so what the elders were proposing is, let's go get the ark and let's put it in front and get the priest to carry the ark and let's parade it in front of our armies. Now you see, there was a historical precedent for what the elders were proposing. In Numbers 33, when Israel left Mount Sinai, Moses told the priests to send the Ark of the Covenant before the people 
And Moses had a creed in verse 35 that went like this. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And then when God's people went into the promised land under Joshua, they went out and many times the ark of God went in front of their armies carried by the priests. For example, when they crossed over the River Jordan in Joshua chapter 3, Joshua commanded the priests in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 3, he said this to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. And then in verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they will know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant that when they reach the edge of Jordan's waters to go and stand in the river. And of course, the priests went. And as soon as they placed their foot in the water, the waters started piling up a great distance away, and the people crossed over into the promised land on dry ground. And a great miracle was done, and a great victory was won. Then over in Joshua chapter 6, when Israel was facing its first battle, the battle of Jericho against the city of Jericho, uh, God commanded the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant in front of the people, and they marched around the city seven times for seven days. And of course, the walls fell down, and there was a great victory. So there was this historical precedent And the elders thought to themselves, why is the Lord not blessing us in the way he had promised? Why are we being defeated? It must be because we're not following the pattern of the past. For the Lord to give us victory, we need to get the ark from Shiloh, have the priests walk out in front of it. We need to follow the pattern. And when we follow the pattern, we'll see the victory. So they sent men to Shiloh and they got the ark. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who we've already read about in 1 Samuel, and they bought the ark. Now look down in verse 5 and see what happens. And as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. They thought, we've got it. We're following the pattern. We're going to have the victory. Look down in verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. You see, they had heard about God's mighty works and how he had defeated the biggest superpower in that day, the Egyptians. But the Philistines' fear didn't last for very long. It soon turned to courage. Look in verse 9. The Philistines said, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So Israel is trusting in their pattern from the past. And let's see what happens in verse 10. Look down in verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now if you remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at 1 Samuel 2. And we saw Hophni and Phinehas, they were wicked men. They did not know the Lord. They treated the sacrifices of God with contempt. They were sleeping with women around the tabernacle. And God said, I've had enough 
I'm going to judge the house of, Is, of, of Eli. And he said that Hophni and Phinehas are going to die in the same day and it happened exactly as the Lord had said. So Israel is absolutely scattered. They are defeated. They are devastated. But worse than that, look down in verse 12. We read that a man from the battle line, he ran into Shiloh and Eli was sitting by the road. And Eli asked him what had happened. And the man told him that Israel had been defeated, that his two sons had been killed and that the ark of God had been captured. And when Eli heard the news, he fell off his seat backwards and he died. So now we've got the two priests dead, the ark captured and Eli, the high priest, dead. But look down in verses 19 to 22, we see that Phineas's wife, she was pregnant, and when she heard the news that the ark had been captured and that her husband had died, she went into premature labor and she died in childbirth. But with her last dying breath, she was able to name her son and she named him this word in Hebrew, Ichabod. Now the word Ichabod means no glory. And names in Hebrew have have huge significance. And she named him this name because she saw that in this event of the ark of God being captured, something had happened in Israel. She said, the glory has departed from Israel. Look down in verse 22. She says, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now this was a significant moment in Israel. You see, the presence of God's glory in the camp of Israel, as symbolized by the ark, was a special sign. In fact, I would argue the distinguishing sign that they were the people of God. In Exodus, Moses cried out to the Lord and he said, O Lord, if you will not go with us, how will the nations of the earth know that we are your people? And when they actually built the tabernacle, listen to Exodus 40, verse 34. It says, after building the tabernacle, then the cloud, the cloud of God's glory, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So now the glory has departed from Israel. Now when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, the glory of God would return But for now, the glory of God had departed. The manifest presence of God had departed from his people. In Psalm 78, verses 60 to 61, this psalm actually comments on this. It says, He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up against men. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. So this was a source of great lament in Israel. Israel was now Ichabod. Ichabod was written over Israel. God's glory had departed. Do you know, as God's new covenant people, what is the distinctive mark of the church? I would put forward to you that the distinctive mark of a Christian and the church of God is that it is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 13, he says, Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the promise of your inheritance. In Colossians 1, he says, the Holy Spirit is, the, the hope of glory is Christ in us. You, I, you see, I think that once we believe in the gospel, we receive the Holy Spirit and we become temples of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I do not believe that the Holy Spirit can ever leave you once you become a Christian. But I do believe that you can so grieve the Spirit and resist the Spirit that the manifestation of His presence dries up in your life. And sadly, many churches, many ministries, many Christians have Ichabod written over them. The presence of God is no longer being manifested through them. God the Holy Spirit is being so grieved and so registered that the glory of God, the manifest presence of God is not seen. I wonder in your life today, is Ichabod written over it? Is the glory of God being seen, being manifested in your life through the Spirit of God? Or has the glory of God departed? You see, what was the problem in this chapter? Remember the question that the elders of Israel were asking, why is the Lord not blessing in the way he has promised? Why are we being defeated? And what was their answer? Look down in verse 3. They say, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us, so that it may save us from the hand of our enemies. They were trusting in the ark and not in the Lord. They were trusting in the symbol of God's presence, the ark, not in God himself. They were trusting in a pattern, not a person. You see, the glory of God departs when we trust in a pattern for victory rather than in the person of God for victory. You see, the primary question is never, how do we get victory? Do you know what the primary question is? The primary question is, Who gives the victory? Now, of course, God is interested in the how. God works through means. The ark was not just some box that was thrown together. It was built to specific instructions by by skilled people. But it was still just a box. Unless God was involved, it was nothing. And you see, the elders of Israel had forgotten something so significant. Back in Joshua 3... Before Joshua told the priests to go on ahead of the people, he said this to the people. He said, consecrate yourselves. In other words, get right with God. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. It was not the pattern of sending the ark before the people that stopped the waters in the river Jordan. It was the Lord. And he was working through a people who were consecrated to him. But you see, they got it wrong. They put their trust in a pattern for victory rather than in the person of God who brings the victory. And we as the church do this all the time. I mean, you know, we hear about how God is blessing a church down the road. And so what do we do? We go and send out spies to go and see what's happening. How are they getting all these people? And the spies, they come back and tell us, well, Pastor Timon, the the preacher doesn't have like a pulpit he, he's sitting on a stool and he has a coffee table next to him. You know, that's the secret. That's the trick. You need to get away, get, get rid of the pulpit and have the coffee table and the stool. Then that will draw thousands of people. You see, programs, plans, strategies are nothing unless they come from God and are energized by the divine power of God. See, many of you may not be here when we actually first launched our 4G vision, but I want to tell you something. It didn't come about because I just had some clever things and I put them together and I put them before the people. The people who were here at that time will tell you that we sought the Lord. We sought the head 
of the church, to seek his vision for the future for this church. I remember one occasion on a Wednesday, we asked the church to fast and to pray. And then in the evening, we were going to break that fast. And it was a, it was a work day. It was a school day. So I was expecting about 40 people to come out. You know, 200 people from this church came out to fast and to break their fast together and to pray before the Lord, to seek the Lord. We, uh, we had times of prayer walks through the community. We had 100 leaders come together and discuss and where's the Lord leading us and praying together of seeking the head of the church. You see, as a pastor, I hear people all the time come up to me and they'll say things like this, at my last church, we did such and such. Or at a church down the road, they do such and such. And do you know what I want to say to them? Now, I'm very polite. But I basically say to them, who cares? Who cares what God is doing down the road? You see, in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus performed five distinct miracles. And in each one of those miracles, he did them in different ways. Some of the time, he touched people and they were healed. Other times, he spoke and they were healed. Now, you can imagine, if those people were alive today, the ones who were touched by Jesus would think, this is the pattern. You need to get a touch from Jesus. And so they would form their own church, the touchy church. And their favorite song would be, to get a touch from the Lord is so real. And then there would be others, and they would say, no, no, no. The way Jesus works is, he just speaks and it's done. And they would be the word church. And so they would form their own church and their favourite song would be Word of God Speak. And then another person would come into town who's been healed by Jesus and the touchy people would say, well, how did Jesus touch you? And that person would say, well, he didn't. And the wordy people would say, yeah, that's right, because he just spoke the word. And the man would say, no, he didn't do that either. Well, they would say, how did Jesus do it? Well, actually... He spat on me. And they, that person would separate themselves and they would form the Church of the Holy Spittle. And their favourite song would be Spittle of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. You see, Jesus doesn't have to work. I borrowed that from someone else. I don't have any unique jokes. You see, Jesus doesn't have to work in the same way, the same time. But just think about it for a second. Why do you think it's so easy for us to trust in a pattern? To just take a pattern from somewhere else and to implement it? Why do you think most people do that? Well, I, be, I think because when you come to God, you have to deal with God on his own terms. And he will want to deal with the heart issues. You see, in Israel, there were serious issues People were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were worshipping and serving idols. Hophni and Phinehas were godless men. And you'll remember the name of our series is The State of Your Heart. And I've said the state of your heart determines the course of your life. And I have seen that before God can bring victory into a church or before God can bring victory into an individual's life, he will deal with the sin issues in their life. He will deal with the state of their heart. And in my brief time in ministry, I've noticed that before God can do a new work in a church, he's got to break that church. He's got to deal with the hearts of the people. There's got to be revival. There's got to be a turning back to him, a putting of things right. But that takes time. 
And it's painful, which is why so many people just opt for following a pattern. But the glory of God departs when we trust in a pattern for victory rather than in the person of God for victory. You see, it took Israel 20 years to learn this lesson. In 1 Samuel 5, we see that the ark was taken into captivity by the Philistines. And wherever it went, it caused havoc. They, they put it in their temple to their god Dagon, but the statue of Dagon fell over right in front of the ark and its head broke off. Then the people of Astod started to be afflicted by tumors because of the ark. And so the ark was moved around, but wherever it went, it caused havoc and caused problems. And so they tried to send it down to Akron, and, and there it caused havoc and problems. So in chapter 6, after seven months, the Philistines decided to return the ark. But what they do is they take these two cows and a couple of calves, and they put the calves in a pen, and they put the ark on a cart, and they let the cows go. And they reasoned that if the Lord wanted the ark to go back to Israel, then the cows won't go back to their calves, which is their natural inclination, but will head to Israel, which is exactly what happens. The calves neither turn to their right nor their left, but they, head, head, they go down the road to Beth Shemesh. And the people of Beth Shemesh, they see the ark coming on the cart and they're filled with joy. And so they, they chop up the cart and they make an altar and they sacrifice the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. But they still haven't learnt their lesson because some of the men there look into the ark. They're still doing what is right in their own eyes. And remember, the ark was a symbol of God's presence. And to look upon the face of God without a covering for your sin was to die. And so 70 men of Beshemes die. And so they sent messages to Kinjarim, and the men from that town came and took the ark, and it was placed in a Levite's house, Abimadad's house, and the ark remained there for 20 years. And in verse 2, it seems that Israel had started to learn that lesson. It says in verse 2 of chapter 7, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. See, there is a serious place for when turning back to the Lord to be grieved over sin, to be grieved over what sin has done in your life. You know, nowadays... We try to silence our conscience. We think that feeling guilty is a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. If it's conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, then it can be a very good thing. I remember reading a book by John Owen called The Mortification of Sin. Not light reading. But in it, he says, firstly, if you're returning to the Lord, one of the things you need to do is not run away from your guilt, but actually load your conscience full of the guilt and feel the full weight of what your sin has done, how your sin has ruined your relationship to God and, and the circumstances and situations that it's brought into your life. But still, just because you're sorry about your sin does not mean that you repent. Look down in verse 3. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord, if you really are returning, if you're really grieved over your sin and you want to return to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He wants to be number one in your life. 
and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mishpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mishpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mishpah. There was a mighty revival that happened there as people turned and repented back to the Lord, served him only, confessed their sin, put away their idols. But no sooner had the fires of revival burned that in verse 7 we see the Philistines rise up. Look down in verse 7. And when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mishpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. What are they going to do? Are they going to go back to the pattern? Let's go get the ark. Let's go put it in front of us. No, look in verse 8. They cried out. They said to Samuel, cry out to the Lord God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And in verse 10, we read that Samuel, as Samuel was offering up a burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before the Lord. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mishpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter again into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. That is what you want in your life. You want the hand of God on your life. That is what we want in this church. We want God to fight for us, to God to work in us. But I want you to notice, Israel goes from Ichabod, the glory or no glory, the glory has departed from Israel to Ebenezer. And Ebenezer means the Lord has helped. And how did, it, how did they go from there to there? Because they were no longer trusting in a pattern for victory. They were trusting now in a person. And in your life, if you're defeated, you can go from no glory, no manifest presence of God in your life, to being a person who God helps God works for, God works through by not following a pattern but by following a person. You know, just this week I have this, I have this way that I pray. I get up early and I go through this sort of pattern of prayer where I spend five minutes in worship and five minutes in confession and all these sorts of things. And on Wednesday night in my sleep I felt the Lord say to me, are you just trusting in your pattern or do you want to meet with me as a person? Charles Price, a speaker, he, he was telling this story where he said that um, he was reading the story of C.T. Studd, the great missionary to, to China and to Africa. And C.T. Studd, one of the things that he would do in his life is he would get up at 3 a.m. every morning and he would pray to the Lord and read his word to 4 a.m. And then when he went back to sleep at 4 a.m., he could wake up at 7 and it was like he had never woken up at all. He didn't miss that hour of sleep. So Charles Price said, that's it. That's the key. That's the key to being a godly man. You need to get up at 
3 a.m. and pray to 4 a.m. So he got up the next morning at 3 a.m., opened up his Bible, and then four hours later woke up at 7 o'clock. See, it's not the pattern. It's not the pattern. It's the person. It's connecting with a person. Now, God uses patterns. But if God works in our lives, it will be because it, in our church, it will be because he's working. I'm really excited about our children's ministry thing. I'm really excited about that. But if God is going to work through that, it's not going to be because of us. It's going to be because he's working. And this morning, I don't know where you're at. I don't know exactly where you're at. But if the glory, if the manifest presence of God is no longer in your life, then it's time to deal with God. It's time to come back to the Lord and seek him. Deal with him as a person. Let's, let's pray to the Lord. Let's come back to him this morning. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. Again, if you would like any information about the life at OBC, please go to our website at www.oaktonbaptist.org.au.